would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, his letter to the Galatians. As we turn to God's Word, let's not also forget to turn to Him, the author, and ask for His help. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we just sang, Jesus, I come. And Father, we come to Jesus because he has called us and he has come to us. Father, we come to you now as you make yourself known through your word. We ask, Father, that you would be pleased to remove the scales from our eyes that we could see your truth. Remove the, uh, the obstacles in our hearing so that we could hear your truth. Father, would you uh, free our minds and warm our hearts that we would know and embrace your truth. And Father, would you strengthen our hands and feet that we could run the race that is set before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to begin by asking a couple of questions. Is unity present? Is unity possible? Is unity present? Is unity possible? Now, you may be thinking about the current cultural climate here in the United States in the 21st century, but I'm not. I'm thinking rather about the cultural climate in the Roman Empire in the first century within the church. Now being brought into the church at this time were two different kinds of people, Jew and Gentile. And for those of you that know anything about the history of that day and age, as scripture makes clear, there was a huge fundamental divide between Jew and Gentile. Now I want to tell you briefly uh, the story of one of my best friends in seminary at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, he and I showed up um, at the same time in the fall of um, 2001, August of 2001, and he and I really got to know each other as we were with 12 other students in an intensive first semester Greek class. Well, my friend, whose name is Yakubu Kutai, was born Muhammad. And he was also, if you were to see a picture of me, he was as black as I am white. You see, Yakubu grew up Muslim in Nigeria, and now he's a pastor in the Evangelical Church of West Africa, bringing the gospel to his people. My friends, outwardly, there were no two different people on the campus than me and Yakubu, but we became great Dear friends, and there was a unity, a sweetness to our friendship that could not have been manufactured. It was a gift. Now, what was the source? What was the basis of that friendship of our unity? 
It certainly wasn't what we looked like. It certainly wasn't the language, our native tongue. It certainly wasn't um, our initial um, religious experience. What was the source, the basis of our unity? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. And indeed, that's the theme of Galatians. One word, faith. More specifically, justification by faith. Turn ahead in chapter 2, look at verse 16 again with me. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times, one verse, Paul wants to make it absolutely crystal clear. Justified not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. In the early 16th century, a German monk was wrestling with God's Word, and he came to discover that Christianity was not about what he had to do for God, but rather what God had done for him in Christ. And about the letter to the Galatians, Martin Luther wrote, The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. Now we'll see running throughout Galatians the biblical teaching about salvation that characterized the work of the reformers. That being justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, and all for the glory of God alone. Why is this so important? Why is this such a big deal? I've been thinking about this for the past few weeks. Why is this so important? Is it to ace some kind of exam? Is it to be able to say that you read the right books and the right magazines? Is it to... Why spend time trying to understand this idea, this biblical truth of justification by faith? in what Jesus has done and not what we have done. Why is that so important? Well, firstly, it's honoring to God because it takes God at His word. You know what it's like uh, when people don't believe you? It hurts, doesn't it? Now, it's important for us to be speaking the truth, but you know it hurts when people don't believe us. What about God? Here's God's word. Do we believe it? So, first of all, What's the big deal? Why is this important? Well, it's honoring to God. We take Him at His word. And secondly, and I trust that this will be something that not only I, but all of us can begin to think about and rejoice in, is if we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, what He has done, not what we do, then my friends, we got a whole lot of free time. Free time to do What? To love and serve our neighbor. I mean, think about it. If we're spending so much time trying to get right with God, maintaining being right with God, we're not going to have time to love our neighbor, are we? But my friend, if we are freed by the good news of the gospel, by the truth of the gospel, then we are going to have time and abundant time to love our wives, love our husbands, love our children, love our neighbor. We love 
because God has first loved us. And we see that love clearly in the good news of the gospel. We're in the gospel according to the Bible, an exposition of the letter to the Galatians. Remember Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he has done, what he came to do, cannot be separated. In our series, we're going to address the ignorance and the confusion when it comes to the gospel. And by God's grace, our ignorance is going to be lessened and our confusion is going to be reduced. And so in the midst of a world of confusion and ignorance, then and now, Galatians will provide clarity on the gospel. Now remember the outline of this short letter, these six chapters, these 149 verses. You know, set your watch. You can read the entire letter in 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Now, it can take a lot longer than that, but you can read through it at a fairly normal clip in 15 minutes. Do you have 15 minutes today to do it? Tomorrow? The next day? I tell you what, um, to see nodding heads out there next week is really encouraging when you're up here. I encourage you to take 15 minutes a day and read Galatians. Because as you, we go through Galatians, you'll see that we're going to have to refer more and more to other parts of the letter as we get going. Well, the first two chapters, autobiography, Paul is defending his gospel ministry, his apostleship. In the next two chapters, there's theology, Paul's theological defense of the gospel message of justification by faith. And the final two chapters, ethics, Paul's practical application of the gospel message to his readers' lives, in particular in the area of Christian liberty. Someone has rightly put this whole letter like this, what God has done, chapters 1 and 2, teaches us what we should believe, chapters 3 and 4, and how we should live, chapters 5 and 6. Three weeks ago in the first five verses, in the opening statement of the defense of the gospel, we saw the moment, the historical background. We saw the messenger, the author, the Apostle Paul, and we saw the message, the gospel. Remember, this was written most likely to the southern Galatian region, a Roman political province. Paul went there on his first and second missionary journeys, and we believe that this letter is Paul's earliest letter, written somewhere between 46 and 48 A.D., in that first few verses of the letter, we see that the gospel is under attack and Paul knows he has to defend the gospel as well as himself. We see the gospel being the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the rescue and deliverance that God brings through Jesus, and, not insignificantly, the grace and peace of the gospel. Two weeks ago, in the next five verses, we looked at the one and only gospel, a framework that would help us better understand and apply Galatians. Because you see, there was a problem of the people turning from the true gospel when they came under the influence of false teachers. And we saw this framework is this, the gospel will be distorted and the gospel must be defended. We saw that the gospel is completely unique and that life depends upon the genuine gospel. And you can see Paul's rhetoric and tone. He is urgent. He is intense. He's indignant at what is taking place. And the message to the church 
right off the bat is this, accept no substitutes when it comes to the gospel. Embrace no imitations when it comes to the gospel. And tolerate no distortions when it comes to the gospel. And last week in the last verses, verses 11 through 24 of chapter 1, we saw the message of the gospel and the messenger of the gospel. We saw where Paul declares both where the gospel comes from, it comes from God, and how the gospel comes to us by revelation. And after he turns to describe his conversion, he declares what the gospel does when it comes to someone. It changes them. It, it, it produces a radical change of life. And remember, radical meaning forming the root at the very core of who someone is. And from Paul's testimony, we saw that God calls us by His grace, reveals to us His Son, and sets us apart for His service. And all of this is just in the first chapter. Now, our autobiography of Paul continues with a section now of a significant trip to Jerusalem. In our text, Paul answers the usual question, how was your trip? I mean, come on. Those of you that went on a uh, trip this summer, what did people ask? Well, how was your trip? It's a great question, and Paul's going to answer this by telling the Galatians two things. Why he went to Jerusalem, and what happened in Jerusalem. So, let's explore now the first ten verses of chapter 2 together. Join me as I read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, although privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had run or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The reason for the trip. Okay, the trip is his second 
trip to Jerusalem. We read earlier of a time after three years he went up for 15 days and met with Peter. But this is the second trip and it's most likely the trip that we see recorded in Acts chapter 11 verses 27 through 30. Now, after 14 years, well, is it after his conversion or after his first trip? Most likely after his conversion. Now, why does he go up? He goes, remember, he goes now to, to prove that his gospel was independent of the other apostles. Paul stressed that he made only one visit in 14 years and that it lasted only 15 days. So he wanted to say that his gospel was independent of the Jerusalem church. But now, to prove that his gospel was not just independent, but also identical with theirs, he now stresses that when he made a formal visit to Jerusalem, his gospel was recognized by them. Now think about this meeting. It must have been some kind of meeting. Paul, for 14 years, had been preaching the gospel throughout the known world. He was coming to Jerusalem to see the men who had lived alongside Jesus. Of course, Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, but he was going to meet with men who walked with Jesus for three years in his earthly ministry. If you heard the text read carefully, then you heard two reasons for the trip. One almost divine and one human. Divine because of revelation. God told Paul to go to Jerusalem. The apostles did not ask him to come. And a human reason. Notice that. In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. I mean, don't we all want to know that? Don't we all want to know that our life counts? What we do matters? Paul is human. But Paul is not seeking the approval of the Jerusalem church. Remember verse 10? If he's seeking the approval of man, he's not seeking God's approval and he's concerned about God's approval. He doesn't seek the approval of the Jerusalem church, but because he knew that Gentile Christians wherever he went, in particular in Galatia, would get confused about salvation and that his ministry would be hindered if the Jewish church in Jerusalem misunderstood his work in that part of the world. The Jerusalem leaders were not the source of his authority, but his efforts to preach the gospel would have been hindered if he would have been opposed. Paul would indeed have thought that his labors would have been in vain if the church had ended up divided. If there had been a Jewish church centered in Jerusalem and a Gentile church centered in the rest of the Mediterranean world. Notice Paul does not travel alone. He's got some traveling companions, Barnabas and Titus. And we see that from the very first verse. Barnabas, who's a co-laborer during his early ministry, He's from Cyprus. He is, in Aramaic, his name means son of encouragement. And then indeed Barnabas was to Paul and others. But along with Barnabas comes Titus, a Gentile convert who was like a son to Paul as he writes in the letter to Titus. We see 
Titus uh, in his second visit to Jerusalem in Acts 11, verses 27 through 30. And here, it's a smart, brilliant move on Paul's part. He's not seeking to cause controversy or to poke an eye in the leaders of the Jerusalem church. No, he is bringing the fruit of his gospel ministry, someone like Titus, along with him. Together with Barnabas to show the solidarity of the Gentile Christians with the Jewish Christians. Let's think about the situation on the trip and indeed in the Galatian church and the action Paul took. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. Now, Look with me again at verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Now they're somewhat unclear. Uh, Who are the false brothers and when did they slip in? Well, at first I was thinking Paul is talking about what's going on in Galatia, but of course... The false teachers that are infiltrating Galatia and other places are coming from Jerusalem. So it only makes sense that as he and Barnabas and Titus meet, there are going to be false teachers in and around Jerusalem. And what were they trying to do? They were trying to bring back believers into slavery. They were teaching the opposite of what Paul was teaching. They were teaching that Gentiles had to be circumcised as well as to trust in Christ to be completely acceptable to God. Remember, circumcision is the distinguishing mark of the Jew and it would be the final step in the conversion of a Gentile. But Paul's response to this this encroachment by these teachers, what's his response? We did not yield in submission even for a moment. Because for Paul, he knew that submission would be a return to slavery. Giving in to the false teachers would mean a descent back into slavery. And we will see unfold a major theme in Galatians of freedom versus slavery. Paul is a freedom fighter. He's fighting not for a truth, but he's fighting for the truth. And why? Why did he, we see this, He not yield in submission even for a moment. Kids, here's a great word phrase to look at. So that. It answers the question. Why did he do that? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Let's listen to that again. Why is Paul not even willing to to give an inch? Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you Galatians. For you people gathered at Grace and Peace Presbyterian Church. Paul saw the issue plainly. It was not just a question of circumcision and uncircumcision of Jewish and Gentile customs. It was a matter of fundamental importance regarding the truth of the gospel. That being Christian freedom versus bondage. Again, Paul sees the issue clearly. He sees that it's important and only when a problem or an issue is correctly identified can a solution be found. 
And so as we were talking this morning in our Sunday school class about one way to grow in our understanding and appreciation of the work of Christ and grace is to understand the heinousness and the magnitude and the offense of sin. Once the problem is identified as sin, then the grace of the gospel could be seen as the one and only solution. And here it is, Paul sees the problem and he knows how to address the problem. So in our text, Paul tells us not only why he went to Jerusalem, but also what happened when he went. What's the result of the trip? First, look with me at the observation of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. What did the leaders, um, Peter and uh, James and John, what did they observe about Paul in particular, but also Titus and Barnabas? What did they observe? Look in verse 7. They saw that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel. They saw that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel. And notice in verse 9, they perceived the grace that had been given to Paul. They saw and they perceived. That was their observation. But it didn't just start stop with observation. It went to action. Look at the action of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Look at verse 3, all the way back. Titus was not forced to be circumcised. Now later in the Jerusalem council recorded in Acts chapter 15, you will see the church makes it clear about uh, Gentiles come into the church and, sell, and circumcision is not a requirement. It makes it absolutely clear, but it's actually clear before then as well. Titus was not forced to be circumcised. So what action did they take? Paul's Gentile convert was accepted. My friends, this is a big deal. Paul's Gentile convert was accepted. But not only that, Paul writes, they added nothing to me in verse 6. Sometimes the best action to take is to take no action. And they added nothing to Paul's message. Instead, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. Paul's commission, his gospel was acknowledged. A convert was accepted and his gospel was acknowledged. This right hand of fellowship is not to establish Paul's authority, but rather to endorse his ministry. The right hand of fellowship. I don't know if any of you all have been, I guess some of you have been, yeah, to an ordination service where during a worship service, men are ordained as uh, uh, deacons or elders. And one of the things that takes place after the ordination is the other elders, the other officers, they extend the right hand of fellowship. Here is a demonstration, as we will see in a moment, of the unity of the gospel, the right hand of fellowship. But finally, the, um, the uh, Jerusalem church did ask them to do something. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Jewish church in and around Jerusalem and Judea was poor. The Gentile church where Paul was going around the Roman Empire was much wealthier. And here is going to be expressed unity as the wealthier churches send money back to the poorer churches. 
My friends, that happened in the first century and it happens here in the 21st century. And one of the signs of true Christian unity is tangible, practical support between churches. That's one of the reasons we're in a denomination. Not only shared beliefs, but also shared ability to help one another. And that's why our denomination is broken into presbyteries. So a poorer church in our region can be assisted by a wealthier church. Paul was eager to do it. And we see in Acts how money was brought to the church. And you see a result of the trip was this, a unified church going into the world. There's a fundamental unity here of orthodox belief. Peter and Paul are together. Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. Peter to the circumcised, Paul to the uncircumcised. Why is there fundamental unity? Why? Because the same Christ is at work in both men. Why is an American student originally from North Carolina in a close, wonderful friendship with a pastor from Nigeria? Why? Because the same Christ is at work in both men. This meeting was massively significant as it confirmed that the gospel is about faith in Jesus Christ, not deeds. Unity here was not at all cost, but unity around the gospel truth. Unity is precious, but not at truth's expense. We heard that in the prayer that Jesus prayed. His high priestly prayer. There is only one gospel the apostolic faith, a recognizable body of doctrine taught by the apostles of Jesus Christ and preserved for us in the New Testament. If there's only one gospel in the New Testament, there is only one gospel for the church. The result of this trip, the truth of the gospel is preserved and the unity of the church is strengthened. Well, we need to end by asking one more question. What if? you guys like what if questions or are they frustrating? You know, what if, what if, I think we teach our children not to ask what if questions, right? What if, well, let's ask that question. What if, what if the meeting had not gone the way it did? My friends, we should read this passage with both fear and gratitude. Think about what was at stake. What happened at the meeting? God protected you and me. Is that an overstatement? My friends, the importance of the unfolding history of the church cannot be overstated. What we have here in this text are two principles of utmost importance. First, the truth of the gospel is one and unchanging. Paul has already said that. Then, now, and forever. The apostles do not contradict each other. It's the same message, the same substance. There is complete accord. There is one accord. Yes, there are differences in style, emphases, a sphere, an audience. Paul goes after the legalist. James will go after the, the anti-law folks, the antinomians. Paul and Peter have a different commission, but they have a common message. The church can allow for a diversity of mission only when there is a unity of message. And where there is no fellowship in the gospel message, there can be no partnership in gospel mission. 
one gospel, one Christianity. And finally, not only is the truth of the gospel one and unchanging, but the truth of the gospel must be maintained in every age. Remember in chapter 1, accept no alternatives. Here in chapter 2, the call is to accept no additives. It's a perennial danger to the church. Christians, you and me, are always trying to add something to the gospel. And things added to the gospel bring us all back to slavery. The gospel brings freedom. Freedom from the curse. Paul was fighting for freedom. We are called to fight for that freedom. And as he demonstrated on his visit to Jerusalem, Paul didn't accept any additives to the gospel. He rejected what the false teachers presented, and yet the Jerusalem church wisely and correctly added nothing. And we are called to do the same. It's a matter of the truth of the gospel. It's a matter of life and death. My friends, additives do not preserve the truth of the gospel. Rather, they distort the truth of the gospel. My friends, neither look for nor accept additives to the gospel. Not only are they not needed, but they are dangerous. The truth of the gospel is preserved in large part when nothing else is added to it. May God be pleased to make it so for us and our generation. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we often think of meetings as insignificant, boring, and can't we be doing something else? But Father, we thank You for this meeting. We thank You for this meeting where the truth of the Gospel was affirmed. The church remained united as the good news of Jesus went out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Father, it has reached Florence, Kentucky. Oh Father, would you be pleased to help us to rest in the good news of justification by faith in Christ. But in that rest, work hard to love others and work hard to to protect and defend that precious truth. Oh God, thank you for preserving the truth of the gospel then. And may you be pleased to do it until that great day ahead when all of your people are gathered into your presence where truly the good news will be seen in all its fullness. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.